Why don't we pray together before we turn to God's word. Father, we are so thankful for that reminder that you are indeed faithful. That is, that is good news to us in a day and in a time when we are not sure what we can count on. Being unsure of what will be consistent from one day to the next. What things or people will let us down. Thank you that in moments like that we can look to you and know that you are a good and faithful God. And one of the expressions of your faithfulness is that you are a God who has abundantly and sufficiently spoken to us. And we're needy people. We are frail and fragile. Life under the sun is difficult. And so we need encouragement. We need refreshment. We need new life, which we know you speak into existence by your very word. So we do pray now that you will speak, that you will give us ears to hear, and that as your word is proclaimed, may your spirit cause new life, the gifts of faith and repentance, to spring up from within your people. We pray all of these things for the great glory, and in the name of our Lord Jesus. It is said that Winston Churchill once attended a banquet where the attendees were asked the following question. If you could not be who you are today, who would you be? Of course, everybody in the place was really eager to hear Churchill's answer, who happened to be seated next to his wife, Clemmie, at the time. And so when they went around and came for Churchill's time, he stood up at his seat next to his wife, and he said, if, if I were not to be who I am today, I would most like to be, he paused, he took his wife's hand, and he said, Lady Churchill's second husband. <laughs> you old rascal, Churchill, you know that about Churchill. On the other hand, I wonder if you've heard the story about a newly married couple who had just had their first knockdown drag out fight after their wedding. It came only a couple of weeks after the ceremony, and it was a doozy. And immediately following the fight, the young wife called her pastor in an absolute panic. Pastor, we had our first fight as a married couple, and it was terrible. It was terrible. I, I don't know what to do about myself. I don't know what to do right now. Her pastor, Marty Sweeney. Cool, calm, and collected, as you'd expect. Leaned back in his chair and he said, Jane, listen, this is, this is not a big deal. We talked about this in your premarital counseling sessions. These things are going to happen. No, 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 she said. She, she interrupted him. I, it, it's not that. I don't know what to do with the body. <laughs> I wonder which of those stories best illustrates marriage in your own mind. Today, we are beginning a new mini-series called Matters That Matter that we're going to weave kind of throughout the fall and the winter in between our series and Galatians. And today, the matter that matters is marriage. And as much as we might jest about all the intricacies and challenges of married life, we also know the reality of it. We know some of us all too well, the pain of it, the long and trying road between I do and I'm done. But why is marriage so hard? 
What's it all about? Anyway, I mean, is it just some kind of created societal institution that really doesn't have any deeper meaning? And perhaps most importantly, as Christians, how can we faithfully navigate all of the expectations and disappointments, all of the pain and even the distress that comes from the institute and the institution of marriage? These are the types of questions that we're going to look to answer this morning with God's help. So I'll invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. It's around page 1 of your Bibles, if you're curious. The reason, though, that we we start in Genesis in all sincerity is because right from the beginning of time and creation, we want to, to establish a biblical framework for marriage that begins right here in the book of Genesis. For example, in verse 18, we have God observing his creation, Adam, man in particular, and he observes that it's not good, that he's alone. And so God creates also and equally in his image, woman. And then immediately after the creation of Eve, we see the creation of marriage. And the first kind of pillar of this framework that we'll be looking at, that marriage is something that's created by God himself. Look at verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This means that In the end, marriage is actually God's idea. It's one of his good pre-fall created gifts to humanity. Also, the creation of marriage here in Genesis 2 sets into motion a, a clear and consistent biblical ethic, like an arc that runs all the way through the Bible, including to, interestingly enough, the Lord Jesus himself. That's kind of the second pillar of this biblical framework that we're looking to establish early on here, that it's created by God, but also affirmed by Jesus. You don't need to turn there, but you might be familiar with the story in Matthew 19, where Jesus receives a question from these legalistic religious Pharisees that's meant to trap him and ensnare him, and he doesn't take the bait, and instead he responds in verse 4 of Matthew 19, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh, so they're no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. So here in Matthew 19, we've got Jesus reaffirming this Genesis ethic for biblical marriage, namely one man holding fast to one woman creating one new union for one lifetime. And believe me, I I get that there are a lot of significant contemporary questions that that come from a statement like this. I, I would love to take the time to unpack them all. We just don't have the time today. Suffice to say, though, that Jesus, contrary to the opinion of some, actually does have something to say about marriage and, and all of those implications. And I'd say, if you have questions about some of them, whether it's divorce or remarriage, gender or sexuality or any of the rest, please reach out to, to me or to one of our pastors or elders this week. We'd be greatly privileged to walk through those questions and those conversations with you. But the aspect of Jesus' statement that we really target this morning is this kind of clarification in verse 6 that he provides when he says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
And what, therefore, God has joined together, let man not separate. The reason we target that is because it's here that Jesus points out another pillar of this biblical framework, and that's that it's rooted in covenant. Covenant. Huge biblical word and biblical concept that we might define as the means by which a relationship is established and maintained. And in particular, those means being a set of binding promises or commitments. We could give several examples across the Bible of covenant relationships between God and his people. From the Noahic covenant to the Davidic covenant to the new covenant under the Lord Jesus Christ. But what's very interesting is that we also see this kind of language used to describe marriage. So the language of holding fast, for example, from Genesis 2 and from Matthew 19 is covenant language. Literally means to cling or cleave, that old King James word, to stick together like glue. More explicit covenant language comes from places like Malachi 2, where we read that the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, your companion and wife, by covenant. There it is. It's covenant, then, that best describes the the binding nature of this new one plus one equals one kind kind of union, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. And it's covenant, then, that that sets the relationship on a foundation of binding promises. Promises that a man and woman make to one another, and by the way, if you caught it from Malachi 2, to the Lord, who's a witness to that covenant. It's the reason that you'll hear things at a wedding, like we're gathered here today in the presence of God and these witnesses. It's also the reason that you hear couples say things like, I take you to be my wedded wife. To honor and to cherish. I will love and keep you regardless of circumstances, in sickness and in health, in joy and in sorrow, in trial or in triumph, according to God's holy ordinance, as long as we both shall live. Because these are expressions of covenant. But every now and then, every now and then, I will have a couple who wants to write their own vows. I'm not totally opposed to that until I get one like this. When I look deeply into your eyes, I see the beauty of 10,000 galaxies. You make me whole. You make me feel free, like a bird in flight across a vast ocean of love. Now, that is lovely sentiment, but the reason that you won't hear those kinds of words, at least exclusively at a wedding that I officiate, is because eventually those same eyes are going to be bloodshot from several sleepless nights of caring for a sick loved one. Eventually, at some point, those those eyes are going to sag a little bit. Because listen, I've seen it. In the battle between beauty and gravity, I'm just saying, gravity is undefeated. Gravity wins. We're going down, folks. But more to the point, more to the point, sentiment alone 
is not going to sustain your marriage when your wife plunges into postpartum depression after the birth of your first child. Sentiment isn't going to sustain your marriage when your husband becomes a shell of himself after he loses his job. Sentiment is not going to sustain your marriage when your spouse gets diagnosed with a terminal illness and all of a sudden requires 24-hour care. You need much more than sentiment to get you through that. You need covenant. Because not only is marriage created by God, affirmed by Jesus, and rooted in covenant, it is also deeply tested by sin and by suffering and life under the sun. And this is the last part of this biblical framework we're working on. We know this, right? What comes after Genesis 2? Genesis 3. The fall of humanity and the consequences of sin run deeply into human marriage. Enmity, confusion, conflict of every kind, and much more. By way of example, you might look to a couple who had been married for 60 years. They loved faithfully all of this time. And they kept no secrets from each other except for a small shoebox that the wife had in the top of their closet. And she asked her husband to never look inside that shoebox. After 60 years, he honored her request. In fact, he had kind of forgotten about the thing until one day she grew gravely ill. And so he was getting their affairs together. He remembered the shoebox and brought it to her in the hospital. She agreed to open the box. And inside were two crocheted dolls and a wad of cash that equaled about a hundred grand. The man was kind of perplexed. He didn't know what was going on. She, she then told her husband that the night before they were married, her grandmother told her that if they ever got in a really bad argument, that she ought to blow off some steam by crocheting a doll. The man was, he was deeply touched. I mean, after 60 years, only two crocheted dolls in a box. Tears came to his eyes. He loved his wife so much more in that moment. Then he asked her about the money. He said, hon, what, what about this giant roll of money? She said, sweetie, well, that's easy. Every time I crocheted a doll, I took it down to the county fair and sold it for five bucks. <laughs> and as, as amusing as that, that story is, it's actually really informative as we seek to understand why marriage is so hard. It's so hard because you, a flawed person, is part of a union with another flawed person that as fundamentally beautiful as it is, is also deeply flawed and, and tested. And that, that leaves us in a pretty precarious position, doesn't it? I mean, is that really it? Are there any resources to kind of help us get through and get down the road? Thankfully, there are. And to find them, I'm going to ask you to move over to the New Testament. Why don't you flip to the right in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, and beginning in verse 22. Ephesians 5 and 22. If you don't have your Bibles, no worries, I will read the whole passage for us. Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, Paul says, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For 
the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, a husband should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Again, we have, important to notice, we have again the affirmation of that Ethic for biblical marriage and sexuality that Paul reaffirms, so from Genesis to Jesus to Paul, all throughout the Bible. But what I really want us to think about for a minute are all of these reflective comparisons that Paul is making. There are a ton of them. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, right? In the same way, husbands should love their wives. What's he doing there? What is he up to? Well, if we keep reading and we get to verse 32, this, this climax is kind of the ultimate reflective comparison when Paul says, the mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What Paul is saying is that one of the great mysteries of marriage, one that if we don't understand, we'll never really understand it. One of the great mysteries is not simply the institution itself, but but what is designed to reflect? And, and marriage, Paul says, is designed to reflect the sacrificial, self-giving love of Jesus Christ to his church. In other words, this is the reflection of the gospel in marriage. We not only have a biblical framework for marriage, but the reflection of the gospel in marriage. Think about it, because it's, it's only in the Christian gospel that we see on a cross Jesus Christ demonstrating the greatest act of sacrificial, self-giving love that the world has ever known. And it's only in the Christian gospel that we see that he did so, that he might redeem a people, a bride, in fact, to himself. It's only in the Christian gospel that we see Jesus' atoning work ushering in a, a deep spiritual union. For anyone who puts their faith in him, he becomes yours and, and you become his. And it's, it's by this union and only this union that all of the glorious benefits and bounties of Christ's atoning work are extended and given to you by this union. This is, this is what marriage is supposed to look like. Now we're on to something. This is the picture that the world ought to see when they look at Christian marriages, a deep union rooted in these covenant promises and demonstrating this mutual, sacrificial, and self-giving love. But, you might say, Pastor Chris, that is a lovely ideal, but that is not what my marriage looks like. We are a long way, a long way from that. 
happy to say there is more to the story. Because you see, marriage is not only a mirror for gospel reflection, it is also a means for gospel refinement. And here we have the refining partnership of marriage. The third key element to marriage that we're looking at this morning, a biblical framework, a gospel reflection, but also a refining partnership. We see it in this passage, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Verse 26 now, that he might sanctify her. Verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So in other words, marriage isn't just a place to model Christ's sacrificial love. It is that, but it's also a place to work out Christ's sanctifying love. Marriage is like like a refinery for the Christian life. Now, the particular emphasis here, we have to point this out, and the particular responsibility is given to husbands. The call, brothers, is to lay down your own interests and agenda for the spiritual good and growth of your wife. This is what spiritual leadership looks like. For all of the gross misinterpretations and abuses by arrogant and misogynistic men, the call to lead your family spiritually is a call to die. So, there is a particularity here in Ephesians 5. But as we think about the New Testament more broadly, I don't think this idea of refinement is exclusive to just one party within the marriage. And here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. I think one of the things that Christian couples, and that I sometimes forget, is that we're wearing like several different hats with our spouse. Certainly husbands and wives, yes. Certainly servant leader, strong helper to be sure. But I wonder when the last time you thought about your spouse as a Christian friend. When was the last time you you thought about them as a brother or sister in Christ? As part of the church family or the body of Christ at large? Surely we don't just give all those things up when we get married. Surely all of those one another exhortations that encourage us toward relationships of mutual conformity to Jesus have something to say to married couples. Right? Consider just two. Hebrews 3. Exhort one another every day that none of you might be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Or Galatians 6. If anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Again, this is, this is not to confuse or to diminish the beauty of biblical complementary roles within the home and in the church, not, not at all. But I wonder what our marriages, what our churches, our communities might look like if we started regarding our marriages as the front line for Christian discipleship and spiritual formation. Mutually encouraging and pressing one another toward maturity in Christ. Because as we have seen, marriage is a covenant union given by God to both reflect and to refine. Marriage is a covenant union given by God to both reflect and refine. But practically speaking, let's just be real, the question still remains, how do we do it? How 
can we experience marriage as this refining kind of partnership that also reflects the gospel of Jesus? And I will mention a few tools for you, namely grace, truth, and wisdom. First, grace. Grace reminds us of the abundant kindness and mercy that God in Christ has has shown first to us as, as broken, sinful people. It's grace that recognizes that refinement comes with care and compassion, not arrogance or dominance or a selfish agenda. And it's grace that proclaims to your spouse boldly and clearly that your covenant promises to them are unshakable. Truth sees sin for what it really is, a harmful and dangerous threat to your spouse's ongoing growth in Christ. Truth exercises courage, it exercises boldness to speak God's word to your spouse with gentleness, but with also conviction, even when it's hard. And then lastly, the tool of wisdom. And this is where we'll spend some extended time talking about application. But before we do, I think, it's, I think it's important to offer just a brief word to those in the room who are single. I want you to know that singleness, like marriage, is also a gift from the Lord. You can read 1 Corinthians 7 this week if you're unsure about that. And I also want you to know that you are not a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. You're certainly not a second-class citizen here at this church. We married couples especially need you. We need your friendship and your counsel and your gifts and your contribution to the body of Christ at large. So we love you and we want you to feel the weightiness of just how important you are in this church family. So, some wisdom for couples. Now, I hesitate to give a big laundry list uh, for a variety of reasons, including knowing that marriage, the monumental thing that it is, cannot be worked out simply by, you know, checking boxes along the way. But maybe you can take one or two of these home with you this week. This is just kind of some pastoral wisdom for how to do marriage in a way that both reflects and refines. Number one, see yourself as the biggest problem in your marriage. Sorry. Listen, I often hear couples, sometimes understandably, pointing to the faults of their spouse. You know, if he only did this, if she only did that, and those things might be true. I'm sensitive particularly to those of you who experience deep pain and habitual sin in your marriage. This is not to trivialize or minimize that. But what I found is that it can be very helpful when each person, first and foremost, looks at themselves their own motivations, their own attitudes, even their own sins. So start with yourself. Number two, repent, forgive, and repeat. Repent, forgive, and repeat. This is a pattern you want to develop in your new marriage. And a lot of times, this means verbally. Brothers, I speak especially to you on this one. The best thing you might be able to do when you go home this afternoon is to verbally and sincerely Confess your sin to your wife and exercise biblical repentance. Which is, by the way, more than just lip service. Repentance is a total change of mind and heart and action. So make this a regular part of your marriage. Number three. And by the way, uh, don't feel like you have to frantically write these down. I mean, you can, but we're happy to make them available to you. Uh, So don't worry if you, you miss one. You can 
call the church office, shoot me an email this week. Glad to give it to you. Number three, proactively seek input from your spouse on your spiritual health. <laughs> this one is great and it's really scary because it requires a ridiculous amount of security and vulnerability between the two of you. It means being prepared to ask and to answer hard questions. But some of you need to go home this afternoon and do a little spiritual assessment. You need to ask your spouse what they think. And you know what? Just, just get over yourself, really. Give them permission to speak into your life. Marriage is worth it. Our growth, the reflection of the gospel, our refinement in Christ is worth it. So seek that input proactively. Number four, don't love your children to the exclusion of your spouse. Listen, I know that our children are a great, great gift from the Lord. And we have a deep responsibility as parents to love and to shepherd them. Well, but I would say guard against spending all of your time and all of your energy on your children. While in the background, your covenant partner just kind of fades away, your marriage erodes away slowly, and all of a sudden you have an empty house and you realize, who is this person? Number five, these all tie together. Date regularly. Date your spouse. And I hate to set frequencies here, but let me just say, fellas, if, if the only time you're going out with your wife is once a year on your anniversary, you're not dating her. You're not. This requires thought and time and sacrifice. Maybe even, fellas, laying down one of your 17 hobbies. The point is to make time for each other and make the most of that time. Number six, don't think about the money that you spend on your spouse or on your marriage as an expense. Think of it as an investment. And all the ladies said amen. No, in all, in all sincerity, the, the amount doesn't even really matter. It's not about how much you spend. At the end of the day, we're talking about thoughtfulness here. We're talking about swinging by a giant eagle on your way home from work and picking up some flowers or chocolate. Ladies, we're thinking about grabbing him a late afternoon cup of coffee because you know he's been getting after it for the last few weeks and he has a long night ahead. These aren't expenses. These are investments, just like the investments of time. Number seven, hold hands kiss, and all that other stuff. <laughs> now, I, I know that not everybody is a touchy-feely kind of person, but many people are. And I have to say, it is amazing to me what the gentle touch of a hand or the gentle kiss on a forehead will do to your spouse when they were in a very bad place. And I'd also say, in, in all seriousness, don't neglect the joy and the responsibility of your sexual life in marriage. This is not an, an inconsequential part of the marriage. There is covenant renewal that takes place. There is intimacy and vulnerability that takes place. And by the way, on this note, please know that this is not one you can take back this afternoon in isolation. All of these things are tied up together, fellas. Yeah, you, it, it might be wise to just, if you think one of these really applies to your spouse, just let that settle prayerfully for a few days before you kind of just remember grace and truth. Number eight, communicate relentlessly, relentlessly. Don't be satisfied with surface level communication. In a day when everybody's too busy, when nobody knows what direction we're going, make the time to get on the same page with your spouse. If you're not on the same page with anybody else, make sure you're on the same page with your spouse. If you don't understand something that's happening, ask again for clarification. Ladies, give them the benefit of the doubt. Your spouse is, is, is not your enemy. And, and we felt, you know, we're slow. We're really 
really slow sometimes. We, we need an extra touch. We need, we need a little extra patience sometimes. But communicate relentlessly. Number nine. Ladies, I'd say, just in my experience, this often applies to you. Don't idolize, not always, but often. Don't idolize your spouse. Or look to them with unrealistic expectations. I have worked with couples. This is not made up where I've heard things from the wife, like when I married you, I needed you to rescue me. Listen, we all come to the marriage ceremony with tons of baggage, tons of baggage. And I think I understand the essence, but dear friends, dear friends, imagine the shattering disappointment that you will feel and that you will experience when he doesn't live up to that expectation, because he will not. And on the other side of it, I mean, imagine how crushing and how stifling that expectation would be for a person. The work of rescue, the work of identity and significance is a work that belongs to only one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And thankfully, he is up for the task. Number 10, don't live on marriage island And I would say this again, especially to those of you in the room, and I know you are here, whose marriages are absolutely hanging on by a thread. Maybe there have been deep hurts, maybe even covenant-breaking sins like adultery or abandonment, maybe decades of unresolved conflict. I would encourage you, get some healthy Christian couples into your life. I know it's a mess. I know it's messy. And that's okay. Maybe some of you are dealing with pain that's so deep you think about a sermon like this or a list like this, you think we can't even get in the same room and have a conversation. To you, I would say this is your takeaway. Ask somebody for help. Whether it's a Christian friend, whether it's one of us, one of your pastors or elders, people who are trained and experienced and and helping to move the ball down the field, maybe it's a Christian counselor. Don't live on marriage island. Your marriage is worth it. It's worth fighting for. Lastly, number 11. Actively pursue Jesus together. This is so important. Like, open your Bibles together. Have some conversations around your dinner table of spiritual significance. Pray for your spouse. Pray with your spouse. Sit next to one another in church. You might even hold hands. Support one another's ministry. Open up your home to other people. Listen, I'm not talking about some kind of weird legalism here. I mean, like any one of you, like there are some days in the Drombetta house when I'm quite happy to get from my alarm clock back to bed that night without any of the humans living in our home without losing life or limb. I, I, I get days like that. But develop patterns of following Jesus together. Develop consistency and habits of pursuing the Lord Jesus and pursuing him together. These are some tools. Use them. Because marriage is a covenant union given by God for the purpose of reflection refinement. In his excellent book on marriage, Married for God, Christopher Ashe recalls a dispute that arose in the British government between the foreign office and the treasury. And the content of the dispute was about which British ambassador should be provided with a beautiful Rolls Royce to conduct their international affairs. Probably not surprised that the holders of the purse strings, the treasury, were a little bit more conservative. They they didn't want too many Rolls Royces 
out on the streets, maybe Washington, D.C., maybe Paris, places like that. But the Foreign Office saw it differently. They wanted them in as many cities as possible. And here's why. They reasoned that most people in a foreign capital will have never been to Britain. But if they saw this magnificent car gliding through their streets with the United Kingdom flag flying on the hood, that they, they would very likely say to themselves, listen, I've never been to Britain, and, and I don't even know that much about Britain. But if they make cars like that in Britain, it must be a pretty good place. Dear friends, our marriages ought to be the Rolls Royces of marriages. They ought to reflect something bigger and brighter and far more beautiful than what is seen on the outside. Now, I'm not talking about some kind of phony, superficial thing happening here. Christian marriage should be as real and gritty as the gospel itself, right? A gospel that's rooted in promises of the new covenant where we are so lost and desperate that God actually had to both set and meet the terms, and he did so in Jesus Christ. The gospel, the gritty gospel, which says that you are so deeply flawed and lost that Jesus had to die. And the gospel that simultaneously says you're so deeply loved that he did. And he gave himself, not because we were righteous, but in order to make us righteous. This is the the gritty, realistic gospel which pictures sacrificial, self-giving love and a love that refines all the way to conformity and sanctification. This, This is what marriage is for. This is what marriage does. It is indeed a covenant, a union that's given by God to reflect the beauty of the gospel and to refine the Christian. With that, why don't we pray together as we think on these things. Father, how we need your help. We recognize the weightiness of something like this. We recognize the importance of it. The stakes are high. And we foolish to attempt to undertake the gravity of the institution of marriage without thinking carefully, without preparing our hearts and minds, without working through the details with great care, because there is a lot at stake. I pray for the marriages of this church. I pray specifically, well, I pray first for those that are strong, those that are healthy. May they continue to grow in faithfulness. May they be an example not only for other families in our congregation, but to the world around. People might look and say, wow, there's something to that. I also pray this morning for marriages who are struggling very deeply. I pray that the healing power of the gospel would come to those who have experienced deep pain and hurt, maybe years or decades of abuse, of neglect, perhaps covenant-breaking sins like adultery. I pray that you will bring great healing to those and that you will give them great hope in looking to the faithful bridegroom, one who is perfect in all of his ways, one who is gentle and careful, one who is clear and consistent, one who never wavers, our Lord Jesus. May he himself be the peace of those who have been so deeply hurt by some of the wounds that come from the institution of marriage. And I pray above all, Lord,
Lord, that as a congregation, you would help us to reflect your goodness and kindness to us in Christ. May our marriages be a vehicle for that, but may all of us, married or otherwise, be eager to give honor and glory to you for your good God. We pray in Jesus' name.